picking up where we left off. A Holling Center podcast. Hosted by Michael Carroll. Welcome to Picking Up Where We Left Off. I'm Michael Carroll, Executive Director for the Holling Center for International Dialogue. In 15 years of conducting dialogue programs on topics in the Middle East and North Africa, if there is one consistent theme throughout many of them, it's how the economy plays a major factor in many of the region's challenges. Countries in the region have a host of macroeconomic challenges, and have so for decades. And when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, many of these challenges were amplified. High unemployment and supply chain problems, just to name a few, have consistently followed global trends. And in May of 2022, the Holling Center hosted a workshop in Istanbul titled Post-Pandemic Inclusive Economic Recovery in the Middle East and North Africa. The workshop looked at macroeconomic shocks and economic responses to the pandemic throughout the region. Most importantly, the workshop also looked at issues of equity and inclusion in the post-pandemic recovery plans. These microeconomic questions particularly how people are weathering the economy at the household and individual level, is worth greater attention. So to explore this further and to pick up where we left off on post-pandemic economic recovery, today we're privileged to have two guests from that workshop. Dr. Eisen Agyun is an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at Istanbul Technical University. She teaches labor economics, economics of education, and health economics. Her research focuses on the evaluation of policies through empirical microeconomic studies, concentrating on women, children, and refugees. In 2020, she was a researcher on a project sponsored by Tubitak, the scientific and technological research institution, to study the economic and social impacts of COVID-19 on Turkish households. The project team's policy briefs received international and national recognition and was featured in media coverage, including print and television. Aysen, welcome to the program. Hello, Mike. Thank you for the invitation. Khaled Abu Ismail is a senior economist at the United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Western Asia. He leads the commission's projects on poverty, inequality, and human development, and is the author of more than 50 technical papers and UN flagship publications on topics such as macroeconomic policies, inequality, conflict, employment, and poverty including the 2022 World Development Challenges Report. Khaled is a policy affiliate at the Middle East Economic Research Forum. He has a PhD in Development Economics from the New School for Social Research in New York. Khaled, welcome to the program. Hi, Mike. It's a pleasure. So I'd like to begin today by discussing an economic world that seems to have gone completely mad. A lot of traditional indicators that we've always looked at don't seem to be applying with the facts on the ground. We have seen unprecedented rates of different things changing as a result of the pandemic. And it can be very confusing and sometimes chaotic for those living in average households. So I want to ask the first question to Khalid, which is, what did the economic indicators before COVID tell us about MENA economies, you know, especially in terms of growth and the trickle-down effect of that growth? And has anything changed since COVID has hit these economies? Well, thanks for um, inviting me, Mike, on this uh very interesting discussion. It's um, it's actually been hard for MENA economies. Uh, most of them, as you know, after 2010, 
got multiple hits. We've we've had, of course, the conflicts that were ongoing, and there was a regional spillover effect. We've also had um, relatively lower uh, fuel prices than witnessed earlier in 2008, and we've had waves of refugees and other factors, including you know economies that were dependent on regional flows of investments like Jordan or Lebanon being particularly hit. Uh, so as a result of all of that, we've had the region being the lowest in terms of growth worldwide, just barely above Latin America and recording growth rates of less than 1% for the period after. On average, here I'm talking, the period after 2010 to 2019. So you're coming into COVID with pretty dismal growth record. And then COVID hits and you've got, uh, you know, record minus 6% in terms of the growth impact. Now, the other problem that you've had in the region, which is quite unique to this region, is that all of this growth, a little as it may be, very, has a very problematic structural feature in that what you see happening at the macro level is kind of detached from what you see happening at the household level. So let me explain. If you go to household surveys, and you measure the actual the income of households and the growth that happens at the household level, it's very minuscule compared to what happens at the, the national level. So for every 1% growth you have at the national level, only one third of that goes down on average to households. And that's why we've had very difficult poverty reduction rates in this region in particular. In fact, the region had witnessed the only region worldwide where you've seen money metric poverty rates go up since 2010. Every other region has seen them go down. For extreme poverty rates, for example, $1.09 poverty line, you know, that has been, there's been a lot of improvement on extreme poverty worldwide, but except for the Arab region. So why is this happening? That's the question. And, and of course, a lot of people have debated this question. One easy way to look at it is through the labor market. You've got some of the highest unemployment rates in the world. You've got some of the highest unemployment rates amongst youth and women, and you've got very low labor force participation rates. So you don't really have enough jobs to start off with. But the employment that has been happening has been happening in the informal sectors and in sectors with very low value added uh, and low paying jobs. Okay, so typically what happens is, you know, if you have investment, you have growth, and then people get their wages and salaries, and they, there's a trickle-down effect, that doesn't really happen. Why? Because the formal private sector, where a lot of the decent jobs are supposed to be created, hasn't been doing its job. And that's the key issue. And the question, therefore, is why is that? Why hasn't the formal private sector been performing in the region? And, and, and there's a lot of theories out there. I mean, there's a supply side story that says, you know, you don't have the skills. There's a demand side story, which I'm more in favor of, which is the investments haven't been concentrated in the right sectors. There are governance stories, of course, about, you know, the efficiency problems and the ramifications of, of you know, government inefficiencies, etc. And of course, it's up to you to decide on which one of these stories makes more sense. But that's my, you know, quick take on this very complex question on, uh, on the MENA region. You know, you raise some interesting points here, particularly about, you know, the mood at the household level in many cases. I know that here in the United States right now, despite the fact that the macroeconomic indicators in many respects are actually quite good, such as unemployment being at an all-time low, 
your the the gloominess factor at the household level right now about the prospects of the economy are some of the lowest numbers that have been reported in the last two decades. So there's obviously a, a big disconnect here between what's going on at home versus what's going on in the macro picture. And this, you know, segues very nicely to Eisen in that she has conducted a bunch of studies about household effects in Turkey. And so my question to you is, what did your research show in terms of how Turkish household economies have been affected by COVID? How are they managing now? So with my fantastic co-authors, Gökçe Uysal and Selin Köksal, we received funding from Tumitak, the scientific and technological research institution of Turkey. And we designed and conducted a comprehensive survey representing the nation. And our goal was to collect information about the changes in the labor market and the household incomes in Turkey during the pandemic. So uh, since we are all also uh, interested in measuring the gender divisional paid and unpaid work, we also collected data about the divisional housework and childcare activities. So that's why I say this is a comprehensive survey. And I must also add that this corresponds to the first wave of the pandemic as our data collection happened in September and October of 2020. We find that the already disadvantaged groups lost their jobs during the pandemic. These are, as Dr. Abu Ismail said, women, youth, and informally employed. I guess this is the common uh, like common characteristics of the region. I call these the already disadvantaged groups because of the structure and the outlook of the labor market before the pandemic. So to some, there's a large gender divide in employment in Turkey. Female labor force participation is very low, slightly about 30%. Also leading up to the pandemic, youth unemployment was high, higher than 20%. And informality is also widespread in the Turkish labor market. 30% of the employees lack job security. So the, these groups are were already disadvantaged, as I already mentioned. And all in all, we find that having children reduced the likelihood of remaining employed for women, while it did not affect that on men. So we think that, of course, school closures are important here, but at the same time, this is consistent with the gendered distributional unpaid work in Turkish households. Indeed, women with children were more likely to exit the labor market and also reduce their working hours in comparison to men and in comparison to women without children. Also, importantly, we find that these effects are larger for lower education levels. Another vulnerability that I want to mention is the informal employment. The informally employed and the self-employed found themselves facing greater risks in the labor market. And this is due to the design of the policies introduced as a response to the pandemic. The short-term work allowance was only available for people with formal employment contracts. So as a natural consequence, the informally employed were left uncovered. And this is similar to the evidence 
from the developing world coming from uh, Morocco and Tunisia, which also reports that the COVID-19 was particularly detrimental for informal jobs. One striking finding is the food safety problems. Even back into 2020, because of the pandemic, and I say even back because it was before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, right, 38% said that they faced difficulty in food expenditure. And as you know, now food prices are even at an increasing trend, so which raises concerns about food safety. So thank you for those comments. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that those trends are very, I think, common globally, that marginalized groups were hit harder. Those that were working in the informal economic sector were hit harder. But you also, at the end of your comments, started to allude to the new normal that we're currently in or the, or the state of flux that we're currently in, where you're talking about matters such as food insecurity as a result of global disputes, as well as you know trade disruptions that have been happening throughout the pandemic and have continued as such. So what I'd like to try to do is pivot the conversation at this point to look at the, the crises that we're actually dealing with right now. And one of those is which is inflation. Inflation has become a significant issue for pretty much uh, both industrial uh, as well as developing countries. So as a universal consequence of the pandemic, how is the MENA region dealing with soaring inflation? And what, if any, is there a way out? Maybe Khalid? Of course, if you want to tackle uh, something like inflation, you have to understand whether where it's coming from. So in this case, I think there's an agreement that this is a cost, what we call cost push inflation. So you've got rising fuel prices, and we know that when fuel prices rise, everything else rises. But also you've got a conflict in Russia and Ukraine that is also pushing up food prices. Now, for this region, which happens to import the vast bulk of its food, that's a particularly concerning element. Um, so, and then, and then you've got another problematic, especially for oil importing countries, that you already came into this situation, the pandemic, with very fragile finances, right? You already had uh, high fiscal deficits, you had balance of payments problems, and um, you already had debt to GDP ratios, which, was, which were quite high. That basically means your fiscal space is dwindling. Your ability to implement some of the stimulus packages that we've seen, for example, in industrialized uh, advanced countries, you don't have that much leeway, especially if you're oil importing a country like Egypt or Morocco or Jordan. Lebanon, of course, is a pretty unique case. So you've got to distinguish between you know, the GCC or the oil-rich countries of this region and between the oil poor, because both have very different ways of dealing with these uh, issues. So for the oil rich, I don't think the oil prices would be uh, an issue for them because they're oil exporters. They can continue on subsidizing fuel prices. But for a country like Egypt, that's a major conundrum because they don't have the fiscal space to subsidize. But at the same time, if they let loose the prices, then inflation is going to hit even harder. That's going to put more pressure on their exchange rates so which are already facing some pressure so so it's a it's a very difficult issue and i think all of us all of the economists and the social planners and the development uh, practitioners are also asking what are the best ways to to deal with this right now and every country of course will have to make up its own formula depending on all of these factors so depending on how exposed it is 
to the financials uh, and the vulnerabilities, depending on how much leeway it has with the fuel subsidies. And so, but it's it's not an easy it's not an easy issue to handle right now. I think that most of the countries are in sort of a wait and see boat until we figure out whether this is going to be a structural issue and it's going to continue on for this is the next new normal or if it's just a blip and we're going to get back to some different trajectory back to the uh, good old days we don't know and i guess nobody really has an answer to that question but if it's going to be the new normal then i guess there is going to be fundamental revisiting of the macroeconomic policies for especially for oil importing countries in the MENA region Thank you. And Eisen, you know, Turkey has been hit pretty hard by inflation. You know, I believe it was a month or two ago, year over year, the inflation rate in Turkey was 65%. And that's coupled with the lira having declined significantly in value over the last few years. How is this affecting normal average households on the ground? Is, how is this making life more difficult in Turkey? And is anything being done to address it? Yes, as you said, expansionary monetary and fiscal policies, which were designed to overcome the negative effects of the pandemic. What I mean by that, without going very technical, the credit expansion and lowering the interest rates, these, along with the general trend of increasing prices, increased the inflation rate to alarming levels in Turkey. And as a result, we have one of the highest inflation rates. So the average household actually is facing this at a like a this is an like an everyday problem as you would imagine especially the increasing food prices is attracting a lot of public debate given that how turkey you know over time switched from agricultural production to being dependent on the other like on the imports of food from other countries this seems like bothering a lot of people, given the circumstances. One thing that was done was naturally the increase in the minimum wage, for instance. However, the inflation with these inflation rates, the real minimum wage cannot be kept high enough. Given the issues such as the global warming, supply chain problems, and the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, these food prices, and along with the high inflation rates in Turkey, uh, we should reconsider how agricultural policies are significant. And uh, we should also reconsider the sustainability of our agricultural production as we design our development goals. And that's a perfect segue, Eisen, I think, into the final question I'm going to ask you all today, partially because you alluded to a potential area of focus for recovery. So... Focusing on this concept of recovery, I'd like to ask both of you, what should be the policy priorities of various governments, uh, especially vis-a-vis -vis alleviating some of the most acute concerns that both of you have mentioned, such as poverty, inequality, and, and challenges within the labor market? And since Eisen already made a suggestion, I'd like to just continue with you first, and then, and then we'll finish with Khalid. Because, Mike, if I want to summarize what the pandemic did in the Turkish labor market in two words, that would be deepening inequalities. So my policy suggestions would be around this topic. In three headings, I want to summarize these. First is the how the governments design the social assistance policies, especially times like these large economic shocks, such as the COVID-19. 
So the policymakers, I guess, should design inclusive assistance so that the vulnerable groups, such as the informally employed, should not be left behind. The other policy suggestion area is about the gender divide in paid work, which was widened by the pandemic. So we basically worry if this could have some long-term effects if the low-educated mothers have a hard time to go back to working. So future policy should work to lessen the long-term effects of employment losses among women. So childcare remains an essential policy area in Turkey, and I believe this could be similar in other countries in the region as well. And when parents, especially mothers, lack access to childcare, their labor market outcomes worsen. So I would suggest that built-in childcare component of the future policy making. And um, one final thing that I want to raise today is that in all of our models, we find that low-educated were at higher risk during the COVID-19 pandemic. They are more likely to lose income. They are more likely to report employment losses. So our results indicate that education is a vital asset in alleviating labor market risks associated to the pandemic. And as I mentioned, high youth unemployment rates. One other concern that has been raised in Turkey is especially the unemployment rates among the college degree holders. So people start to question, when this is the case, people start to question the returns to a college degree. However, data, this household survey, shows us that education not only serves as a protection against the risk during a big shock such as the COVID-19, but at the same time, among the university graduates, the gender imbalances in the labor market are also lower. So the education can be our way through addressing the gender imbalances in the labor market. Yeah, I fully agree with Aysun that the social policies uh, are the right entry point because what we've seen is a region that is extremely vulnerable to shocks. Just to give you an order of magnitude, the period from 2018 to 2020, saw an extra 16 million people poor using national definitions in, in the MENA region, excluding the GCC, uh, Turkey and Iran. Let me also tell you, just before I get into the concrete suggestion, what's been happening in terms of inequalities. Because, you know, the poorest of the poor and lower middle class, their way to respond to these crises is, of course, to sell private wealth, to be able to cope. So the typical resident in the region saw a decline in their wealth on the order of 28% over that period. Okay, So it's, according to our paper that we did in ESPA, around 2,500 on average, the, the median person in the region had a private wealth that was valued around $2,500 at the end of 2020 compared to 3500 in mid-2019. And so if you go to the poorest one half of the Arab population, their wealth fell from 1,100 almost to 770. That's a huge shock. But at the same time, the wealthiest 1% of the region's population saw their wealth control, their share of, of the regional wealth go from, you know, uh, 37% to 45%. Okay. So 
we've had these differential impacts in it. Bottom line is that it's not due to the lack of resources. We have enough wealth, we have enough resources in the region, and we've seen inequality go up. So what do you do? Well, one suggestion would be to be able to revisit fiscal policies and, and, and tax policies in a way that they are more progressive and to revise, as Eisen said, some of the uh, inefficiencies that you have in the system. It doesn't make any sense that you continue subsidizing fuel when we know that it goes to the top, it favors much more the, the top 20, 30% of the population. You need to do better targeting of, of social policies. And there's so much work can be done uh, to improve your targeting now. Of course, that requires, again, revisiting your data infrastructures. Your, your, a lot of the discussion that Aysun is uh, referring to is based on household surveys. Well, these household surveys are not conducted on a regular basis, so you also need to put in place systems, governance systems, as well as data systems that allow decision makers to have evidence-based policymaking. But also, in addition to these, um, you know, very important short to medium-term uh, interventions, you need to address the root causes of uh, the, these vulnerabilities. And here, of course, the issue is going back to, you know, why isn't the private sector generating enough decent jobs? Why isn't this region moving on structure transformation? Why is the contribution of high value added uh, sectors in the economy so uh, low compared to other regions at the same level of income? I think these are the questions that you need to uh, go back to. And I think the easiest way to, to have a logical entry point to the, for policy interventions is to distinguish between what can be done internally, you know, in, within the country, and also regional. So I think the regional component has been overlooked here. This region has one of the lowest interconnections in terms of infrastructure and mobility within, you know, labor flows, capital flows. Of course, labor is... is a, Depends on which countries we're, we're talking about, but also it's, it fluctuates uh, depending on, you know, also political factors and so. But there's a lot of potential for growth, sustainable growth, to happen along with a better regional economic uh, collaboration. Now, how that happens, I think, is a subject maybe for another longer uh, discussion. But it's time for the region to explore options that are also not just confined to national policy options, but also regional ones. To get really, you know, innovative answers to that, you need to think just beyond your national uh, frontiers. So that would be my two cents on, on, on this, uh, Michael. Well, I'd like to thank you very much, both of you, for, for joining us today and giving us some really good food for thought. As my grandfather used to say, sometimes the best way to start the job is to start the job. And I think you've given us a few places where we could start looking at, at least in that short to medium term. But I think uh, you're correct, Khalid, that we're probably going to have to have a, a continuation of this podcast to look at some of those bigger issues that both you and Eisen were bringing up towards the end here. But in the meantime, my thanks to both of you and for joining the podcast today. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. My pleasure. pleasure. Thank you very much.